Hello everyone, it's July 24th, 2018. This week a Blue Origin capsule does an emergency escape at high altitude and the ISS gets a boost into a higher altitude by a Cygnus resupply vehicle. So let's see what heights we can reach on today's episode and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 168 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. My name is David. And my name is Ben. How's it going, David? All right. How's your cat? Because uh, we're trying to get a show going here. And he is, oh, I think I just heard him again. Well, he just took a dump. So I don't know what he's complaining about. Maybe he's constipated. Uh, I think he just wants, I think he wants a friend. He's like, I need another cat. I don't like this dog who's constantly attacking me. Can I please have a friend? Are there any friends out there? I guess the dog has already gotten too big for him, huh? Oh, oh, he was too big when we first got him. Um, and now, <laughs> now Reggie the dog regularly um, grabs Ollie the cat by his collar and drags him around. Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's not great. And we, we kind of... You know, try to get him to stop whenever he does it. But the fact of the matter is that, I mean, quite often we'll come into the room and Ollie will be somewhere up high getting ready to jump onto the dog. So we we don't think he's, you know, traumatized by this. He just kind of gets into a, a situation that he can't get out of and just decides to give up and get dragged around for a little bit. So, well, so it sounds like he's probably antagonizing the dog if he's like if he's no. jumping on him no 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 it's it's very much the other way yeah so the dog drags him around and then he gets revenge by jumping on him yes okay it's basically like when he's had too much he'll just wait till the dog turns his back and then jump on him cats always have that advantage they can get up high so that's how you escape dogs dogs aren't good at jumping uh, cats are however are very good at it i, I remember my cat would, would often jump on top of the refrigerator in one just in one jump. I, th I mean, he was really good at it because that's a good almost six feet, I suppose, depending on how big your fridge is. Yeah, and that's surprising. They just leap. It's incredible. And, and I don't know how high big cats jump, but I heard something like 12 feet. I could Jeez. be wrong. Jaguars, very good jumpers. So that's kind of how they get up into trees. They just they just leap and then they're up there. Terrifying animals because they're like, you know, ambush predators. Well, I guess all cats are, but I think they hunt people occasionally, or at least if they think they can take you on, which they probably could. It's, it's really good they sleep all day because otherwise we'd be in yeah. real trouble. So now I have to be terrified of bears and jaguars. Bears are still at the top of the list. Uh, I think I'm more afraid of them <laughs> as far as, you know, fear of animals, but jaguars aren't far behind. So space is also nice. Yeah. Space is way better than bears. All right. So yeah, this week in space flight history, um, let's turn to that. And it looks like we have a lot of correct answers here, despite the fact that you made a slight error. Yeah, no, I, I made a, I made an error and nobody caught it. So well, several everybody, people caught it. Everybody caught it once they started paying attention. Uh, yeah. So, uh, the, me saying nobody caught it is me just trying to place the blame on anybody other than me because, you know. Uh, all right. Uh, our winners this week are Valentin Frank, Alistair Cranston, Chubby Turkosi, the Foamcast Radio Podcast, Taylor Marks, and Fell Knight. The clue for this week was how do you fast from dawn till sunset in space? This week in Space Flight History is the 27th of July, 1972, not 1927. It was the birth of Sheikh Muzaffar Shukar. So he was the first Malaysian astronaut. He wasn't the first Muslim astronaut, but that's kind of what the, the clue was referring to. We'll talk about that in a sec. Um, but because he's Malaysian, he actually has a very long name. And I, I wanted to be as respectful as possible and actually like give him his proper name because he's often credited as Sheikh Mustafa. Mustafa on the internet 
And the problem is that, as far as I can tell, that's not his actual name. That is a patronymic, um, not his actual family name. Yeah, but he ha he has a much longer name that I thought about attempting, and then immediately decided that would not uh, <laughs> that would not uh, have the effect that I wanted. Anyway, uh, yeah. So he was the first Malaysian astronaut. Some people have called him a cosmonaut, but NASA says, hey, he could fly with us too, so we're gonna call him an astronaut. Um, anyway, he's he's an orthopedic surgeon, and he flew to the International Space Station on TMA-11, and he was only there for 11 days, um, but he he did some pretty cool experiments that had to do with cancer, you know, just a, a bunch of like medical experiments, which is pretty cool. So NASA wants to call him uh, an astronaut. Uh, the Russian ambassador to Malaysia called him a cosmonaut, but his technical title was spaceflight participant, which sidesteps the issue. <laughs> uh pretty nicely uh oh okay yeah here here we go thank you 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 included a list of some of some of his other experiments so uh liver cancer and leukemia um specifically looking at growth and then he also did uh, crystallization experiments on proteins and microbes which is pretty cool and weird and things you can only do in space okay so the clue so he, while he wasn't the first muslim in space he was the first muslim to be in space during Ramadan. And so they actually wrote a guidebook just for, well, not just for him, but they, they wrote a guidebook that answered all these questions, which is how do you perform this very earthbound religion in space? And so the, the two cool things that I thought they had to figure out how to do were how to determine prayer times and when to fast, because obviously you can't reference the sun while you're in, in orbit because it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so what they decided to do was to tie um, his fasting times to the local time of where he launched, which happens to be Baikonur, um, which means that his fasting didn't uh, fall on the the Houston time that the station works on. So I don't know exactly how that all worked out. And then the other interesting issue is that they had to figure out which direction to pray in because they face Mecca. And what's really nice about Islamic scholars is that they say, don't get too tied up in how you figure this out. Because even on Earth, there are two ways to calculate, traditionally two ways to calculate which direction Mecca's in. If you're just outside of the city, it's really easy. You just look and and face in the right direction. But if you're in Australia, you actually have to face north. Um, and so there are two different ways of, of doing this basically spherical geometry and, and figuring this out. And basically, you know, a lot of religions would get really hung up and say, hey, you know, this is the right way. No, this is the right way. And basically, it sounds like pretty much everybody agrees. Don't get hung up on the details. Do your best. Focus on the prayer and the meditation and the spiritual things, not the physical things, which I think is pretty cool. And so I've read the uh, the guidebook and it pretty much sounds like they said just do your best because he actually he actually made it into space without coming to a particular decision on this and um, they basically said okay let's get you into space see how things actually work and then once you have a little bit of insight then we can begin to figure this out um, but it sounds like what they decided to do was to look at where station was above the ground at the time I think at the time that he began praying and then figure out a direction from there um, instead of having him you know constantly rotate but the the big deal here is that it's not it's not super important to get this thing exactly right so no it, I don't think that you can come up with an exact answer um, just just do your best here. Okay, so that's uh, this week in Space Fight History, kind of a quick one. And what is our clue for next week and 
Let's get the year right. <laughs> I'll well, be paying what, attention. I, you you should go ahead and read this because you came up with the clue. So okay, yeah. So the so the clue is uh, next week in 1930. No Buckeye, no Buck Rogers. Boy, I love puns, don't I? Yeah. So if you know what that pun is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Blue Origin does a high-altitude escape test. So this, I guess, is the first high-altitude escape test because they did one, uh, well, I guess, two years ago now that was also a, I mean, very, very similar, but not at quite the same altitude as this one. Yeah, so so here's the thing. They want to have what's called a full envelope system. They want to be able to abort at any time during the flight. And so previously, they did an in-flight uh, abort test during max Q, right? Which is relatively mm. low to the ground. And this time, not only did they burn the first stage, uh, you know, it's, it's complete burn, but they separated and coasted for an additional 20 seconds on top of that before doing, b before lighting up the escape engine. So this is kind of uh, proving out this system where they're saying, yes, we can, um, we can do this anywhere along this. Here's where our actual limitations are. Um, and let's go to extremes to know that the stuff in the middle where we're normally going to be doing aborts is okay and safe and, and we understand how this works. Well, as you said, they coasted for 20 seconds. I think that that was just to you know, make sure that, that they could uh, recover the booster. I don't know if there was any other reason than that. They just didn't want to, you know, burn on top of the booster yeah. because it was a close call last time because last year, or I guess two years ago, they did not expect to recover the booster. Um, and yet right. they did. And they did successfully, completely. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think in this case, yeah, you, you definitely want to be able to recover that boost module if, or the propulsion module if you can. I think you're right. I think that's probably the, the main bit. But I would argue that also being able to do Super late aborts is an important part of understanding your system. I wonder, though, what kind of anomalies that they might not have accounted for, what would crop up? I mean, um, because doing it at max Q, that, I mean, at right. least I would argue that that has to be the most difficult thing. So if you can ace that, then you're good to go um, at a higher altitude, which is pretty much at this point. I don't know if it was, if it had reached the boundary of space by the time they did the abort. If not, it was pretty close, right? Yeah, I would, I would have to assume that it'd be real close because it doesn't coast for that long and coasting for 20 seconds has got to get it maybe, maybe even past its apogee. I'm not a hundred percent sure about the timing i watched the video and of course i had all you know the times in my head in the and then i've since forgotten them so <laughs> yeah so it coasted for 20 seconds did the boost and then at that point that's what i think put it above the carmen line because the abort i think boosted it something like an additional i want to say like 50 kilometers i mean that's probably not mm. right that doesn't sound right but it could be because it's a pretty powerful motor and you're pulling about 10 g's there so that's a lot of acceleration it got up to 119 kilometers which was the highest altitude ever for uh, this vehicle. And I wonder, is it the first time it has officially reached space, quote unquote, at 100 kilometers, even though I know that that's not, you know, necessarily the official definition of uh, space? This is uh, New Shepard 3, and th this is its third flight. And on its first flight, it was just under 100 kilometers. The last one that they did at the end of April, they actually went above their target, remember? So they actually hit 107, even though they initially said that they were shooting for 100. Um, so yeah, th this capsule itself has totally has gone above the car 
Garmin line. But yeah, this time, yeah, like you said, it, it went higher than New Shepard's ever gotten before. I had forgotten that this is a new version of the both, I think, the booster and the capsule. I don't know what upgrades were made, but did we ever talk about that? Because I, I don't recall. Uh, I don't know if we talked about it, but New Shepard 3 has a better TPS thermal protection system. And then they also did some some updates for reusability. I think they added like basically new pan, you know access panels so that you can get in and, and do quicker reusability. But that's pretty much the only changes they made um, other than the windows, which I don't think that New Shepard 1 and New Shepard 2 actually had windows. I think they had stand-ins and, and New Shepard 3 has got windows and they've been able to shoot those beautiful videos with Mannequin Skywalker and the, and the giant window behind him. Yeah, and I think this was also Mannequin Skywalker's third flight as well. <laughs> yeah, so, yep, I believe so. So that first test of the escape system, which was back in October of 2016, that reached an apogee of 7 kilometers. So yeah, it, just to put it into context, this was uh, 119 kilometers. So a huge difference as far as, you know, abort goes and no issues at all. And the host of the webcast said that the RCS systems, you know, which are on the underside of the capsule, that they had performed well. So no issues issues there. I kind of forget about those because I kind of think of the capsule as just sort of, you know, like tumbling back to Earth. But obviously, you need to have a reaction control system if you're in space because if you have passengers on board, I suppose you could tumble and then it would eventually reorient itself. Um, but you don't want people tumbling around in a capsule. Yeah, if you, you know, if you deploy the pilot chutes, I'm pretty sure it's going to be able to orient itself properly before you deploy the mains. But yeah, that does not sound comfortable. That would be kind of like a Mark Watney moment where you're tumbling around with, well, I guess hopefully not stuff like, you know, screws and bolts. I just watched that scene actually a couple of days ago. So that's kind of fresh in my mind. And I'm like, yeah, you don't want to be tumbling in a capsule because uh, you want to get a nice good view of the earth in space. But other than that, I don't know if they would necessarily need the RCS system, right? Because they're not coming in at any, I mean, they're coming in at a high speed, but it's more or less straight down. And so the capsule should reorient itself in the correct mm -hmm. position. So yeah, I don't right. think that they would necessarily need the RCS system. All right. Hey, let's translate. I haven't used that in a while. Let's translate oh, to our boy. next segment. Yeah, well, there's a reason for it, right? Because this has a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of maneuverability in this next uh, uh, topic here. So uh, so what are we talking about? Yeah, so this makes me super excited. This is just super, super cool. So this week, Cygnus was used to reboost the ISS. How cool is that? So right now, the only thing that can reboost ISS um, our progress and uh, Zvezda, right? Yes, Zvezda. So now we have a potential third way to reboot cessation, you know, after losing shuttle. So Cygnus was docked to uh, Node 1's Nadir port, which is nice because it's very, very close to the center of gravity of the station. And that tends to be where Cygnus is put um, it's not super intentional. They they kind of put vehicles, uh, you know, there's so many different things that they have to consider when they're deciding where to put vehicles and Cygnus just tends to be uh, on this port fairly often. So it, it's handy that it happened to be there. And anyway, so they um, did two attitude maneuvers. So first they yawed 180 degrees and they pitched 90 degrees to point Cygnus's engines uh, retrograde and its nose prograde. So David, you and I talked about this for a while, trying to figure out exactly why they did it this way. Um, we, we talked to Ben Honey and he didn't have, uh, I was kind of bugging him at the very last minute, but my understanding is that, well, what, what Ben Honey said is that there are only two 
quote-unquote stable orientations, either forward or backward. Anything else is unstable and you don't want to be there. So they, they wanted the U.S. orbital segment pointed down, the Russian orbital segment pointed up, and then Nadir pointing retrograde, and of course, Zenith pointing prograde which puts Cygnus in the, in the right orientation. And for some reason, they didn't want to be flipped the other way so that the Russian segment was pointing down, um, right? Because if you were to just pitch the station forward, the Russian segment would be pointed down, and that way um, Cygnus and the, and the Zenith node would be pointed retrograde. Anyway, uh, so, so they did these two attitude maneuvers, pointed Cygnus in the right direction, and then fired up Cygnus's main engine for like a hot second. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, two or three seconds because this was just a, this was just a test. They want to understand how the system works. And yeah, Ben, Ben Honey, um, who, uh, he's an ADCO, right? Yes. Yes, he is. Yeah. Uh, been on the show before. If you haven't heard his interview, you have to go listen to it. It's really good. Um, but he said that, yeah, everything looked good. Uh, that Cygnus is, you know, close enough to the center of gravity that, that, you know, they saw some torques being applied to station, but it wasn't outside of the range of what they were expecting or what they can handle. So everything's okay. And yeah, so, so this is hopefully going to be a thing in the future. Um, there is an option for a future test, um, on the next Cygnus mission. Um, hopefully it's going to be a longer burn. I'm not, a, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but the idea here is that in the future, NASA can pay Northrop Grumman extra money and that way they can fly extra propellant on Cygnus and they could actually use Cygnus as a legitimate planned uh, reboost maneuver which is super cool um, and and to me this was really interesting because in the you know social circles that I run in uh, people have been talking about using Dragon to reboost station for a very long time basically since as soon as dragon was slated to get super dracos everybody's like oh can we reboot station with this and the answer is yeah you can but you can also reboot station with just dragons you know normal draco engines it's not that big of a deal um but the issue has always been well super dracos are not oriented in a great way to to be super effective and for cygnus that's not a problem it's it's the engine's pointed in the right way in the right direction. Yeah. I thought there was an issue with the Super Dracos in that it's not ideal because they're Super Dracos. And I don't know if you can throttle yeah. them enough back because that's a huge jolt. And I don't know if yeah. it's possible. Yeah. Super Dracos at their lowest throttle is still, I I think, borderline. I don't I don't know. But uh, from my understanding, I mean, it's, it would be like a record setting amount of thrust, basically. Um, yeah. You know, more or, you know, close to it. Don't don't quote me on that. But yeah. So I think that's a super interesting uh, new development. Like, that's a thing that we can do. And I'm super surprised. I, I hadn't heard that they were going to do this. And last week we talked about, hey, was Cygnus doing anything interesting before it deorbited? Yeah. And it's like, hey, yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, we did talk about that. Well, I was thinking, you know, I hadn't thought of uh, before it deorbited, but also before it departed the station. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, right. in fact, it's doing something very interesting because right now it's really, you know, just the Russians uh, who can, you know, perform this task. Mm -hmm. And so I yeah. guess uh, NASA wants a little bit more independence and a little bit more flexibility just in case it's like something happens and you don't get a vehicle up there. Um, it's good to have Cygnus. Yeah. Well, and that that's the thing is like if Russia is the only organization that can reboot station, then any issues that Russia misses – 
are missed, right? But if NASA can also be a participant in reboost activities, then if Russia overlooks something, that's okay because there's a completely redundant organization uh, that can do some work. So it's it's always a good thing, and that's that's why we cooperate on things like this. Yeah, like this this is super important. Kind of makes me wonder if maybe Starliner would be capable of something like that. I'm sure it'll be discussed at some point. Let's do some short and sweet. And what is our first one? Parker's Solar Probe B is pushed back to August the 6th. So originally slated to launch on August 4th, the launch date for the spacecraft has been pushed back to the 6th after some concerns were encountered during encapsulation of the probe and its payload fairing. The issue had to do with the configuration of a cable clamp inside the fairing. The problem has been resolved and operations have been resumed. And now uh, Parker's Solar Probe B will be lifting off aboard a Delta IV at Slick 37B at Cape Canaveral on August 6th around 4 a.m. local time. Did you know that the Parker Solar Probe B, I think, is is supposed to be the fastest fastest satellite? I guess not a satellite, the, the fastest spacecraft in human history, or am I wrong? I mean, depending on, on definitions, it won't be the fastest leaving Earth, but it will be the fastest zipping around uh, perihelion. Yeah, and that's exactly why, because of uh, perihelion. It's going to get very close to the sun. It's going to go inside the sun's quote-unquote atmosphere. Yeah. Which is so I cool. Don't, I don't see how that's possible, but okay. Good job, NASA. I don't know how you did it. Well, here, here's the thing. So at, the corona is actually cooler than an area just above the corona. I thought the corona was hotter than the area just below it or something like that. No, it's, I mean, it might well be. I don't think so, though. I think if you go, the farther down you go, the hotter it gets. But you have this area in the corona, which is actually cooler than what's above it. Anyway, let's, mm. anyway, okay, let's yeah. go on before we, we make fools of ourselves because this is not our. <laughs> anyway, all right, moving on. So next up, UK officials have selected a site on Scotland's North Shore for its first vertical orbital launch facility. The first launch may be sometime in the early 2020s. The new launch site is being advanced by Lockheed Martin and British aerospace startup Orbex. Uh, the two companies received millions of dollars in government grants in order to bring small satellite launch to the UK. As for what vehicle will fly from the new site, there is no official word yet, though many speculate Rocket Lab will be chosen for the job. And Virgin Orbital has expressed interest in flying Launcher 1 from there too. And my first thought is why not both, but all right, whatever. Gotta start somewhere. All right, and third and finally, Astra Space successfully conducts its first launch, finally. So after a handful of scrubbed launch attempts throughout 2018, Alameda-based Astra's Rocket One performed its first launch out of Kodiak on Friday. Rocket One is notable for having a battery-powered fuel pump similar to Rocket Lab's Electron. It was a suborbital launch that came as a surprise to pretty much everyone, even though a no-tam was issued. We're not sure how the launch went yet, but we wish the whole Astra team the best of luck. I missed this launch, but I'll be, I'm going to try to catch the next one because I didn't even know it happened. They are super secretive. Or I, I guess they're not secretive. They're just you, under the radar. There was nothing to watch though yeah. yeah okay well that might be why yeah yeah they they didn't broadcast it and nobody was able to get footage because it was too foggy okay stand by we're looking at it Questions, comments, and correction burns. Uh, this week we just have a small, little, minor, whatever correction. So I wasn't, e- I wasn't even gonna mention it until like everybody piled on. So this is, I guess, important enough. So yeah, this is 
written in by everybody in the world. I meant to say that Opportunity held the Mars operational record, but I said Curiosity, and I'm very sorry. I love Opportunity. I, I feel like most people knew what I was talking about, but I'm I'm really sorry. The two words, for some reason, are very close in my yeah. head. Yeah, they are. That happens to me, too, because I would have said something, but I didn't catch it because Curiosity yeah. and Opportunity, they're kind of similar. It's got It's got to be words. the E at the end, right? Itty. Plus, they just kind of feel like the same word. I mean, they kind of have this positive and exploratory connotation to them, yeah. I guess. Okay, I'm glad it's not just me. That makes me feel good. Curiosity, opportunity. Um, I can't think of another one, but... Serendipity? That's a good name for a rover, actually. I really like that. It's a little bit comical, but that's exactly what happens a lot of the time. So the UK Space Agency has launched a competition to name the rover, which is the, the ExoMars 2020. So I guess, I mean, that's the name of the mission, but the actual rover doesn't have a name yet, and hopefully they'll do better than something like, uh, well, what was the last thing that they named? I think it was a poll within the UK specifically, and they named a boat, like Bodie McBoatface. Do you remember that? Oh, Bodie McBoatface? Yeah. Uh, that That's classic. So I'm hoping this isn't Rover McRoverface, but um, if they still want to be funny but still respectable, I think Serendipity is a good name for a rover. I think they should go with that. And I think that anyone listening should also enter the competition and do serendipity. I like that. All right. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We have three this week, and the first one is actually uh, the first one is actually Copenhagen Suborbitals, and they're launching the Nexo Two rocket, and that's happening on July twenty eighth between eight and eleven in the morning uh, UTC. So a little bit early for anyone here in the states, but maybe you can catch that one. Uh, so yeah, this is neat. This is the Nexo Two uh, with a slightly modified BPM five engine. The Nexo One uh, had, I believe, the same engine, but there was well, it didn't make it the full duration because there was insufficient LOX flow. So my guess is they made whatever modifications necessary to avoid that. So good luck to Copenhagen Suborbitals. Hopefully we'll have some cool videos to watch. And then we have two more launches, both of which are within minutes of each other, I believe. Yeah, so the first one by like 10 minutes, apparently, is an Ariane 5 ES is going to be flying Galileo, a bunch of Galileo satellites. So FOC 19 through 22, and FOC is full operational capacity. We've talked about this a, a little bit before. So Yeah, although um, I see it says full operational capability, to be uh, precise. Okay, all right, all right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't tweet at me. Uh, all right, so um, of course this is the uh, European GPS uh, alternative and uh, the launch is taking place on July 25th at 11:25 UTC and then shortly after that David what's happening yeah literally what about 14 minutes later is the launch of a Falcon 9 with the Iridium next 56 and 65 or I'm sorry 56 through 65 right so they're launching a whole bunch of uh, Iridiums in one go um, and that is launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base and yeah so that is 10 communication satellites for Iridium next mobile communications fleet and that was a uh, delayed from july 20th and i guess previously july 10th according to spaceflightnow.com not sure why though but the 
current launch window on July 25th is, uh, well, I guess it's an instantaneous launch window. So that is 11.39 and 26 seconds uh, UTC. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, time to close out the show or deorbit uh, and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check them out at ronaldjenkins.com and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that is all, so we will see you in one week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.